Okay, here we are, session four, and we're gonna be talking about sex. <laughs> See, he still laughs. I giggle. You make me giggle like a middle he, schooler every he's time. He's still you... a middle schooler, <laughs> deep down in there. <laughs> we're uh, gonna talk about sexual intimacy, and one thing that we deeply believe in is this conversation needs to be happening more in the church, for sure. Mm-hmm. And we do a good job, I think. <clears throat> talking about it with in student ministry, um, and we may do some in college, mm-hmm. but to us, the battle for sexual purity really heats up at the altar, yeah. and that is exactly when we quit talking about it in church. Uh, you don't hear any sermons on it very often, um, and there aren't very many classes that go along in, in our discipleship programs. But Scott and I really feel like that's um, that's really not serving us very well. That uh, that our education and our help for um, for issues in in physical intimacy and marriage have to come from outside the church, how, outside the very place where it is to be um, the most revered, the most sacred, um, and we should be able to receive the most help from because it was certainly designed by God. So we are proponents about having this conversation mm-hmm. in the church. And talking about it a lot. And a lot of our young couples who have been with us long enough know, you know, Scott and Dawn are going to talk about it because we don't like to see our couples struggling. If we can do something about it, then we want to open up that conversation. So mm-hmm. we, we want to talk about it um, here with you all today and maybe give you some talking points to have some conversation about it together. Um, Let me say this real quick, too. This is what we're going to do, guys. We're going to do kind of a big picture in this session, but what we're gonna include for you, you can look down below the video tab and you'll see a a PDF. Years ago, Dawn and I put together this resource called Six Keys to Better Sex and Marriage, and I'll allude to it along the way through this session. But there's just so much that needs to be said that we can't compress into this one short format. This was a six week session. So we've included this for you and your spouse for the weekend, uh, just to download the PDF. This is all the content of a six week session with a host of questions in there for you to look at. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So as we get started, we want to really challenge the mindset about sex and in the context of marriage and just mm-hmm. because I feel like for the most part, we've really we've we've really gotten our ideas about it from one of two places. We've gotten it from our family of origin and our past relational experiences. And so we kind of learn about it from from those avenues. Mm-hmm. Um, how you first learned about it and what it is um, to your first experiences sexually, um, your ideas that you might have received from the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. So we want to challenge and bust up some myths maybe that you have about it before we kind of get into the meat of what we're going to talk mm-hmm. about today. But maybe myth number one is that sex is intimacy. Well, if that were true, then we would all feel so close mm-hmm. and we'd all be so happy and, yeah. and healthy relationships would abound here on earth. But th- that to me is a lie of the entertainment industry that that sex equals intimacy, that it, um, that it fosters that bond of closeness with a man and a woman just in and of itself. But that is really not true. There is an experience, a momentary feeling of closeness 
but on the back side of it is destruction. And we've seen this continually mm-hmm. when sex is like, uh, it's like a fire. In a, it should be in a fireplace. So if the fire is in the fireplace, it provides warmth, it provides um, um, heat to the family, to, mm-hmm. and it provi- it's alluring, it's inviting, um, and it's life-giving. But if you let that fire get out of the fireplace mm-hmm. and out into the room, there's going to be damage and destruction depending on how much time it spends outside of that boundary place. So sex is really designed to be in the context of marriage. That is where it is blessed, where it's most safe for it to be, uh, to be contained. But outside of that, and I know that we can see it, out in our culture and in our world, and we see it a lot in our couples, in our premarital couples Mm -hmm. that come in with a sexual past and they are struggling with high levels of um, jealousy and insecurity uh, and immaturity. Um, Sexual sin in men fosters immaturity. Mm -hmm. Sexual sin in women uh, fosters insecurity. Both in and outside of marriage. Yes, that's right. So sex is not intimacy, but sex at its best um, is this expression of the deep, intimate relationship that is the true gift of God to a husband and a wife. So Mm -hmm. that's myth number one. Myth number two, God and our sex life do not go together. Okay, let let me just, I just want to bust that up for a minute. It is not as though God is turning his head when a husband and a wife are together going good grief, I hope and pray that they get this over with. That is is not how he feels about it. that is sexual sex is a gift to us as a married couple mm-hmm. um, it was his intention and his design and I know that you have you have heard that um, before it's his intention to help us actually have that as our experience um, if the only time you pray about it is to say God please make her want to do it tonight or God please help me get through, get through it this. right mm-hmm. then there's a problem there that's mm-hmm. not what God intended for us to experience in our sex life as a married couple let me just say this guys um, in our six keys when we talk about in the very front of it and you can see this when you upload the PDF this weekend when we talk about the the purpose of sex Generally within the church, we, we know the nomenclature of it's for procreation. We know, we know that. But Dawn and I want to challenge your thinking. It's not just about having babies. It is about partnership. It's for pleasure. And we'll talk about that, not just pleasure of one, but it's intended by God to be for the pleasure of two. But a key for me and Dawn years ago that helped us is when we started realizing, as Dawn's alluding to, that sex in the confines of marital fidelity is intended to be a worship experience, a praise experience of God. Now, I know some of you watching this, you're thinking, do what? How do you get God and the marital bed and praise and worship? Let me just tell you, when you practice what we're going to be teaching you in this session and in through the PDF here, when you get the thinking, I'm going to tell you, if you're struggling sexually as we have in the past, 
I can promise you more often than not, what is wrong with your sex life is not anatomical. It's right up here. Well, it is anatomical. It's between the ears. It's what Dawn and I call stinking thinking. Mm -hmm. And the goal of this session and the PDF that you're going to be reading is to help alleviate a ton of stinking thinking. One of the best things that help us is when we began to view sex as intended by God as an act of worship. Mm -hmm. It revolutionized our marriage. That's right. Sex at its best is an act of worship where we practice offering and sacrifice. Yes. Um, and it brings glory to God. So our sex life is not absent of the Lord. Um, he is very much a part of it and a very, very much, and at least I have found, a helper mm -hmm. um, because um, I really truly believed myth number three, which is sex is, is always going to be a struggle. Um, and actually, that's not true. Um, but I will say that there will be struggles from time to time. And that is normal. That is normal in, a, in the healthy sex life of a married couple. Mm -hmm. It's to time, time to time and struggle, to have struggle. Age and stage has mm -hmm. a lot to do with that. Um, also, um, the sickness or illness or injury of a partner have uh, a lot to do with that. Their sex at its best goes with the ebb and the flow of a lifelong relationship. And it really serves as a bonding agent for the souls of the mm -hmm. husband and the wife. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a place that is to be a place of comfort. It's a place of healing, a place of bonding for us. Mm -hmm. So when we, when we look at married sex, then that, this, is what, this is the approach that we're going to come at it from. And we hope that you're going to hear, hear a little bit today that's going to encourage you in this area if it's a place that you might be struggling or mm -hmm. you might be settling or you might believe some myths yourself. And it's important to identify really what do you believe about it? What do you think about it? Not just what the Sunday school answer would be, mm -hmm. like you would say if you were in a Sunday school class, if you're going to talk about sex in a Sunday school class. Yeah. Um, but That was one of our biggest Sunday school it classes. It was. It was our highest attended Sunday school class. It was highest attended class Sunday we school class in the summer. It was, when everybody goes away, but no. So if you're away. a pastor and you want to do high attendance yeah. Sunday in the summer, teach a course on biblical sexuality. Yes, you'll have more people there than you can handle. Shake a stick at? No, I didn't want to say that. Yeah, okay. Okay? okay. All right. <laughs> Won't you take us, hey, if you got your Bibles, guys, this is what we want you to do. Take your Bibles, or if you got your devices, your iPad, however you're reading your Bible, turn with us to the very first book of the Bible, chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2. In, first, in the first session, you saw Dawn. Dawn read from Mark chapter 10, where Jesus himself was actually quoting this passage from Genesis chapter 2. And so we're going to kind of tie together what we did with the intimacy of session one, the context of covenant oneness in the confines of marital sexual uh, fidelity as God has designed it. So Dawn's going to read for us here, Genesis chapter two, verses 18 through 23. Okay. For the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Hmm. So as we look at this text, we're looking at really the beginnings of God bringing the first man and the first woman together for community and for companionship. And then Moses ends this text with how they came and they began this covenant oneness together. It's interesting as you look at Genesis, if you've read this book before, chapter one, uh, Moses records each day, the, the days of creation, the six days of creation. And at the end of each day, as you read through chapter one, you will see this repeated refrain, and God saw that it was good. It's very interesting, though, when after the creation of the first man, you look here at verse 18, and you can see this is the first time it's recorded by God saying that something was not good. Now, God's not saying he made a mistake. He's just saying my created work for man is not yet finished. He allowed Adam to see pass all of these animals in front of him, bat, cat, rat, dog, hog, all that kind of stuff going by. But it's very interesting that Adam began having this intuitive sense, something's not quite right here, that he, he did not have a companion for him. When I do a wedding, right before the bride comes down, I like to take the groom, who is usually right here behind, beside me, I'll put my hand in the small of his back and I'll, I'll turn him to me and I will quote this passage from Genesis 2.18, where God himself says there, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And I will say to that young groom, there's a hole with you, within you that cannot be filled by anything else in this world other than the love of a woman. It seems like even in sinless perfection that God himself is saying, Adam actually needs another companion beyond me. He needs what God refers to as a helpmate, a companion to come alongside him, to do life with him. And that's what we see here. From the very beginning of time, God has never intended for man to be alone. We see this even with God himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1.26 with the language of us. 
Let us make man in our own image. See, I believe, and we're teaching our couples here at Lakewood, and we want you to understand this too. Hopefully you can see these letters. Covenant and coming together is no longer about I and me. Coming together in communi community and, and uh, companionship of covenant no longer is about I and me. It's about us and we. The language of covenant is us. And you see God demonstrate that himself there in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our own image. Men have been created for, as I've said, for community and companionship. I saw this quote and I, I happened to believe it. He said, the most wild, violent, sociopathic men in history have always been single. Now think about that. I started doing some research of some of the most maniacal men of history, and many of them were single. So it appears that marriage has this blessed civilizing influence on men. You see here that Eve was made from Adam, from his rib, for Adam. From Adam and for Adam, she was made from his rib as a reminder of their essential oneness. Out of me became this person. We are one and the same. You see this language, even Paul, and I did not pick this up until recently. And I've read this passage for years. But Paul picks this up in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Paul says there to the Ephesians, he connects this idea of the woman coming from the man by reminding us, he says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Because in essence, what he is saying, Adam, Eve came from you. She is one with you. He who loves his wife loves himself. In essence, as I love Dawn, I am loving myself because we are one. We're intended by God to be one. It's not you and me. It is us and we. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So I have a formula I want to give you this weekend that I believe you can do it this way. Leaving plus cleaving and receiving equals oneness. Say that with me. Leaving plus cleaving and receiving equals oneness. So let's look at the last two verses of chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. I'm going to read it one more time. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, we. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Let me say to you guys, 
This, you may think, this has nothing to do, Scott and Dawn, with sexual intimacy. I think it has everything to do with it. A key factor, I believe, in connecting intimately on all levels, body, soul, and spirit, one aspect is this very first step of leaving your father and mother and cleaving to one another. Mm -hmm. I think that this speaks to um, no longer the need for parenting. This means maturity. This means stepping into marriage as a, as a man. Mm-hmm. If there's no longer a need for that parenting authority in your life. You are ready to move into that place of authority in mm-hmm. the home. That is what it's saying here is leaving behind the childish ways. Yes. When I was a child, right. I thought like a child. 13. That's right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave all of that behind. And then now, fully mature, or mature up until that point, maturing, growing, ready to step into that place of authority and leading and cleaving. Yeah. In your handout, I want you to fill this in. Leave, leave any undue connection between you and your parents. And here's what I want you to fill in. I, I firmly believe this, guys. You will struggle to become one with your partner if you have not left the two of your parents. Now, what does that mean? That may be, as Dawn was saying, leaving an emotional attachment, an undue emotional attachment. Ladies, let me just say this to you. If the first inclination when something's going wrong financially around the house or whatever is to call your dad, I would say, think about that. Because on some levels, I suspect if, that's, if that is something that you have a tendency to do, it on many levels probably emasculates your husband. It says to him, my wife doesn't think that I have what it takes. She needs to go to her father or vice versa. If you as a husband do the same thing, you don't talk to your spouse first about we, what are we going to do about this? You're breaking down the intimate connection that God designed from the very beginning. If there was not a need to leave, God would never have said to do it. So I just want you to think about this. How might you need to leave? I'm not saying break ties. Don't hear it in the context of breaking relational connections. That's not at all what we're saying. But we're saying if there's undue emotional, relational, or financial dependence on either set of your parents, grandparents, or anyone else, we want to challenge you because that is one of the first principles leaving to connect in oneness with one another. The second principle I want you to think through is this, is leave behind, Dawn's already thought about, talked about this in leaving, is leave behind unhealthy thinking about physical intimacy. Mm-hmm. Many couples that we deal with, we even dealt with this in the early years of marriage, is that 
marital intimacy is for the man to enjoy and for the wife to endure. And that is, that is what we would call stinking thinking. In the six keys, you're going to see this as if you download the PDF. The very first key that we give you in there is to align your thinking about sex with what's God, what God says is true. What Dawn and I unfortunately find out from most couples, I, I estimate it to be in the 85, 90 percentile, if not more, is that the majority of Christian couples were never given a healthy biblical framework by which to think about marital physical intimacy. Mm -hmm. I, I picked it up at Central Junior High School in seventh grade. Uh, there was a guy in my industrial arts class that would talk to me about things as the teacher was writing. This was back in the 70s when you still wrote on a chalkboard with a piece of chalk and got the dust all over your hands. But this guy would whisper in the back of in my ear, I, I had a crush on this girl at the time, and he would ask me these things. And if he could see how big my eyes were getting, because I had no clue you could do that kind of stuff. But that was the entry of my sex education was in seventh grade industrial arts class. And most of it was probably wrong. Now, I suspect that there's some that are watching this weekend that you have some faulty, as Dawn said, some of the myths, some stinking thinking. Maybe you were never taught. There's great resources out there. You've got this one. One of the best resources I ever came across years ago was Kevin Lehman's book, Sheet Music, that just profoundly helped me and coached me up as a married man on the biblical understanding of sexuality. So we have to leave. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and then second, shall cleave to his wife. Cleaving implies leaving. You can't cleave if you do not leave. Cleaving implies leaving. If you never leave, you'll never cleave. For those of us who are at Lakewood right now, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7. And recently we just read... Matthew 6, where Jesus at the end of a section there on the sermon says, you cannot serve two masters. And in the same way, you can't do that here. You can't still be at home with your parents and be in your home with your spouse. You cannot serve two. You're going to have to choose, are we going to become one? You can't cleave to one another and something else or someone else at the same time. Now, I want to speak to the men here. We deal here a lot with men at Lakewood who are struggling with addictive behaviors, pornography, masturbation, you name it. And I'm just going to say to you men, you may be sexually frustrated with your wife, and I want, I'm saying this not to shame you, but to challenge you as a man. It could be very well that the struggle that the two of you are having sexually has nothing to do with the two of you. It has to do with your unconfessed sin. Because this is what I have found 
Men who are addicted to porn or masturbation often have an inability to perform in, in the marital bed. They're cleaving to something else. And I don't mean that in a crass way. I'm just, I'm just saying it for what it is. If you are, if you are letting that act of pornography, maybe strip clubs, masturbation, surplant marital intimacy with your, with your spouse, I'm telling you, you're out of God's will. That is not God's best for you. Also, adultery. What we find, we deal with adulteries. Usually, Dawn and I will counsel at least five uh, couples a year, who were, five to ten couples a year who were dealing with adultery. And inevitably, the adult, adulterous spouse has bought one of the myths that I can find elsewhere what I'm not finding here. And it just does not work that way. And I, I don't, I don't want it really just to sound like that. That's just a word to men. No, that's right. Both, that's good. both of those issues are increasingly yeah. uh, issues for women that's true. as well. That's true. Sadly, but this goes back to what we talked about earlier about mm-hmm. living separately internally. Yeah, that's right. This is an example of living my own life in my own way, the way I want to live it, in order to solve a problem of separation internally here in the in the in the marriage. Yeah. Yeah, and just a plug for Sunday night. Um, Sunday night, this coming Sunday night, March the 29th at 6 o'clock on our Forever Marriage Facebook page, Dawn and I are going to be doing a Q&A with you guys, anybody that wants to jump on with us. But we're going to start it out with um, five specific steps that you can take to cultivate intimacy. Because as Dawn said, uh, in the first session, we, we begin to live separate lives internally before we ever do externally through addictive behaviors, adulterous relationships. There's, there's an internal dialogue that has already been going on for days, weeks, months, maybe even years before any of that stuff ever started. But if you want to experience sexual intimacy the way God designed it, you have to be aligned with how He prescribed it. He prescribes it through leaving and cleaving, cleaving to one another. Nothing else, no one else. You cannot leave and cleave. You cannot cleave to anyone else or anything else and and expect that we are going to have a God-honoring, mutually satisfying sexual relationship. It just can't happen. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's oneness in body, soul, and spirit. I will tell you this. The couples that Dawn and I deal with who have the most mutually satisfying, fulfilling sexual relationship, there there typically is a pattern. The general pattern premaritally is that they abstain sexually prior to marriage. What I tell couples premaritally, if you want to have a sexually fulfilling marital relationship, um, you have to decide, do I want to abstain now so that we can maintain later? Because here's what inevitably happens. 
And chances are, it's some of the couples that are watching right now. If you were sexually active prior to marriage, maybe you were cohabitating and sexually active, and maybe you've been married two to three years now, I suspect sexuality between you and your spouse is virtually non-existent if you're like most. But the couples that we find who choose to abstain prior to marriage and don't even cohabitate, now I know some of you are saying, good grief, Scott, that is so archaic. I'm just telling you. Many people look at it and think that God is withholding good from them. And what we choose to say, it's not that God is withholding good from you. He is holding best for you. So if you're premarital, let me just challenge you. If you're sexually active right now, up until the point of your marriage, let me just encourage you. If, if I were speaking to you as a father, I would just say this. Listen. Just cut the sexual ties right now. Trust me on this. You can write me. You can call me. You can text me months down the road, years down the road, and, and thank me for it because I know you will. Abstain now so that you can experience God's best later. Now, we will address in here, I don't have time here, because many of us, Dawn and I included, we didn't do that. And we, candidly, between us, we spent the first decade of our marital life sexually trying to get all of this aligned, what we're teaching you now. Mm-hmm. So we're not trying to be these uh, cosmic killjoys. We're trying to help you experience God's best for sexual intimacy the way He designed it. And as Dawn said, the way our culture propagates it is not the way it's designed. And if you're buying the culture's lies, you're going to get what the culture is selling. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just say this to you. Your sexual relationship is perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. So if you're not happy with or fulfilled with the sexual relationship that you presently have, I would challenge you to look at the systemic design that you have. Maybe you need to heed what Dawn and I are challenging you to. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And look at verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When I was at Georgia Southern back in the 80s, I would go to uh, the library. It was about the only time I went to the library. And this was back before the Atlanta, before um, social media, the web, and all that stuff. You, if you wanted to read the newspaper, you actually had to get a newspaper. And I would go to, um, to the library there at Georgia Southern and read Louis Grizzard. If you're old as I am and, and you're out there watching, you'll know who Louis Grizzard is. When I'm doing a wedding and I get to this verse, verse 25, I, never, I grew up in South Georgia. And in South Georgia, we called it naked, okay? Uh, and I never can remember when I'm reading this and the man and his wife were both naked. And right before I say it at a wedding, I'm like, is it naked or is it naked? And Louis Grizzard used to say it this way. Naked means you don't have any clothes on. 
Naked means you don't have any clothes on and you're up to something. Now, in the context of here, this is the beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing. Verse 25, man, this, this verse just means a ton to me. And this, let me tell you why. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They didn't have any clothes on. Chances are they, they were up to something because we eventually find out about their sons later on in the narrative here. But the beautiful thing is they were naked and there was no shame. Matthew Henry said hundreds of years ago, blushing is now the color of virtue. In other words, in our culture today, we blush when we have a virtuous uh, sign inside of us that what we just did or what we just said or what we heard was inappropriate. Blushing is now the color of virtue, but it was not then the color of innocency, the color of innocency. Adam and Eve had no need to blush because there was no shame. Thus, that had, those that had no sin in their conscience might well have no shame in their faces. If you have no sin in your conscience, you'll have no shame in your face. Though they had no clothes on their back, Adam and Eve's lack of shame was an expression of their innocence. The beautiful thing, I recently married a couple. It's one of the most touching things I've ever been a part of. Um, this couple had saved themselves for one another sexually. They had saved themselves for marriage and they had saved their actual first kiss for the day of the wedding. So when I said to the groom, you may now kiss your bride, it was, I felt almost like a voyeur as I and the crowd that was there, we were watching this very intimate, very precious moment. I began to weep because I was watching something beautiful because there was no shame. There was no shame. I knew from their story, they came in this holy innocence to marriage, and there was no shame. And I'm sure that night they enjoyed the fruit and the blessing of their choices. But what we see is that is rare. It is so rare, right? honey. It is so rare. And that's right. It breaks it, my heart. It's it's rare. I think it breaks our hearts because we've seen it, we've experienced it ourselves. Um, that even as we see Adam and Eve's, you know, sin when it when it happened, you know, the first thing that they did at the realization of their guilt was they, you know, they covered themselves with fig mm -hmm. leaves, and um, you know we. We still fig leaves our fig leaf ourselves mm -hmm. today. You know, we want to cover and and hide in our shame um, and our embarrassment, and it has an effect in a married couple and specifically in our Christian couples who they're ashamed to talk about the struggles that they're having mm -hmm. in the bedroom together. Yeah. So they doll themselves up at church on Sunday mornings and they they come and participate and everything, but they're hurting, and and so you know, for us. 
the, the reality is that even though shame is very much present, Jesus Christ himself took care of that shame. That's right. He took care of that shame for us and that he took all of that to the cross, that he declared us, even if we sinned, mm -hmm. he declared us not guilty. Mm -hmm. And when he declared us not guilty, he said, you know, you're no longer, you're, you've done a bad thing, but, but you're declared not guilty. Mm -hmm. Shame says you're a bad person because you've done something bad. Mm -hmm. um, but he says, actually, no, I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to call, I'm going to call you my child. Mm -hmm. And when you understand those two very powerful truths, then your um, dignity gets restored That's to right. you. That's right. That's right. That's and good. so, and that plays itself out in the marriage bed when you feel like your dignity has been restored to you, um, and uh, and then a couple begins to thrive in in that area. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's important to understand forgiveness. Yes. And that God Himself took care of shame for us. Yeah. Um, there's no way that we can forgive ourselves. That's not biblical. No. That we can only receive forgiveness from God, a total cleansing, and then receive forgiveness one from another. Yeah. Great word. And that's a great place to, to bring it to a close. So here's, here's how we want to encourage you guys. God, I believe... The love of God wants what's best for you in your marital sexuality. I believe the wisdom of God knows what's best for you in your marital sexuality. And I believe the power of God can provide what's best for you in your marital sexuality. As Dawn just said, I don't know where you are. Maybe you were you bring in you're coming into marriage and you're enjoying in marriage the holy innocence of sexuality of the couple that I just described. Or maybe you were just like me and Dawn. We could have walked down the aisle dragging luggage of our sexual baggage with us. As I said that we took years to to um, overcome but here, as Dawn said, and I just want to encourage you as we close, God is a God of grace. We have experienced ourselves. God, through Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, God is a God of restoration and reconciliation. As Joel said, what the locusts have eaten, what the years we have lost in the years, it can be restored. If you have questions, we have basically what we did here when we wrote this piece years ago. I sat down um, in the spring of that year and just began asking God, God, what was the roadmap to marital sexual restoration that you took me and Don through. And he just began taking me through all of the experiences. And the experiences became these six keys. And they are simply this. Align your thinking about sex with God's truth. Deal with sexual sin, both past and or present. Regard each other's needs as more important than your own. Fiercely protect emotional intimacy with and for one another. Pray with and for one another. You may think, what does that have to do with it, Scott? Let me just say to you, prayer with your spouse and not just for her. 
Guys, it's one thing to say, honey, I'm praying for you. It's another thing to say to your bride, honey, let me pray with you. Because as that Dawn alluded to earlier, that provides a level of security for her that is unmatched, man. And a wife who is secure with you spiritually is going to be more apt to connect with you body, soul, and spirit. And then the last key, Dawn's alluded to this already, is to remove any barriers to sexual satisfaction. All of this which requires candid, honest, transparent conversations. I remember some of the first conversations Dawn and I had years ago. We laid in bed with the lights off mm -hmm. because we were both too embarrassed to talk about it and look each other in the eye. God is for you. He wants what's best for you. And so do we. So Father, I pray for our friends who are watching. I pray over the course of this weekend as they have watched Levi and Krista with spiritual relational intimacy and Dawn and I with overall view of intimacy and this session with sexual intimacy. I pray our couples are encouraged, not discouraged. I pray our couples will leave with just one nugget that they can sink their teeth into and begin to apply. Lord, I pray for a revolution in marriages in of those who are seeing this, whether they're seeing it locally, regionally, nationally, or globally. I pray, Lord, for a revolution of healthy, thriving marriages that are glorifying you and that are bringing mutual honor to one another. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, as we usually end our classes, this is what I want to challenge you. As I just prayed, we always end any class that Dawn and I lead with this simple question. What is one measurable, realistic, and specific next step you can take to apply what we've talked about this weekend? A measurable, realistic, specific next step you can take to apply what we've talked about this weekend. Take a few moments now and discuss this with your spouse. And then I hope you'll join us Sunday night at six o'clock Eastern Standard Time on our Facebook page, Forever Marriage Facebook page. Dawn and I will be online at six o'clock Eastern Standard Time. We'll, get, we'll start out with some tips to cultivate intimacy in marriage, and then we'll take any of your questions. Hope to see you then. God bless.